Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Canis Albinus. Makalua. The main team. Mega Bears fan. Listeners, and welcome to Polycast episode 390. I'm the main team, and I'm joined by Canis Albinus. I hate hospitals. Makalua. I hate tire pressure warning lights that lie about tires. And Mega Bears fan. Uh, I also hate things, some things. Can't think of any right now, though. <clears throat> I hate horrible, wholesome sunshine. I hate it. Too much experience with the hospital to like it. Sorry. Nobody likes hospitals. That's why they are settings in horror games so frequently. I mean, they Along do their job, schools. but you, you don't want to need one. And occasionally shopping malls. Yeah, you don't even have to do anything to a hospital to make it scary. You just get as realistic a render as a hospital as you can find, plop it into a horror game, and bam, you got your setting. Depends on which hospital you're talking about, because children's hospitals aren't typically that scary, but... <laughs> well, I... I mean, it depends, because well, sometimes it, children are also creepy. So you combine hospital and children, and you get something that can be thoroughly creepy. There was a uh, children's hospital in Dead Space 2 that was pretty darn defective. There was a child's hospital in Dead Space 2? Uh, yeah, it was one of the... Lo- or maybe it, was a, maybe it wasn't a hospital, maybe it was like a daycare or, or something, I don't remember. Either way, that sounds really uh, not a place you want to be in a Dead Space game. No. It was uh, it was effectively creepy. One of the creepier settings in the game, I thought, for a game that had uh, you know erred more on the side of action than the horror of its predecessor. But uh, it had its moments. I don't share this fear. I don't know. Dead Space is not one of my favorite things. I guess it's a pro tip. Just don't be in a Dead Space game. <laughs> I don't like that whole universe. I thought the first one was quite good, but. Uh, the sequels just quickly dropped off for me to the point that I didn't even play the third one. Second one was like, meh. And then third one was like, nope. I heard they Mass Effect 3 at the third one. They did a lot of things to the third one. Instead of shooing in, uh, including uh, shooing in uh, co-op multiplayer. Sounds like a Mass Effect 3 thing. And uh, Dead Space 3 was also historically notable for being, like, one of the first, if not, or I think the first major release that included, like, extensive microtransactions. Oh, yeah, so we got people's blood pumping. Yeah, all the upgrades for, like, guns and stuff, instead of being things you collected in the world or bought through an upgrade screen, they were things that you had to purchase with real money through microtransactions. Well, I'm glad nobody remembers that game. <laughs> yeah, thank God nobody else tried doing things like that. Oh, gaming would be such shit. <laughs> <laughs> Language, ah. Oh, sorry. It would be such poop. Just that would be unfortunate. Well, this is the month where Civilization 1, the franchise itself, turns 30 years old. Uh, we don't really have a specific release date for the actual game because it was just kind of listed as September 20 or September 1991. Because back in those days, there weren't really the same kind of release systems the same way that we have nowadays. So, congratulations to Civ for being 30 years old. Yeah, back then you'd have to just ship them out and just hope that the stores stocked them on the day they were supposed to be stocked. Yeah. You were lucky to get a specific month and not just quarter or whatever. Yeah. I remember lots of times I'd be waiting for a game, you know, I I would get like subscriptions like, you know, PlayStation Magazine and stuff like that. And I'd be anticipating a game and I'd go to the store to buy it and it just wouldn't be there because it had been delayed. And I had no friggin clue because there was no Internet. Oh, there was. Yeah. Well, in 1991, no. Later on, yeah. But even then, nobody would 
unless somebody knew somebody at the company, nobody knew about the company half the time. Yeah, well, yeah, I, there there was an internet, but there wasn't the the you know yeah. flood of news about every little thing that we have now. <laughs> Maybe this, it would have been a better world if we didn't have that. Yeah, yeah, we're we're definitely living in the nightmare that was predicted by Hideo Kojima in Metal Gear Solid Two. But anyway, hooray! Happy birthday to Civ. So it says here. It says here that the game mostly spread through word of mouth because there was little promotion because Microprose's management had animosity toward Myers' game. Well, good for you, Microprose, being stupid even in your early days. <laughs> good job. That wasn't very smart of you, was it? Yeah, publishers at that time didn't know what to do with a lot of uh, of these PC games that ended up becoming super popular. I, you know, I think we've all heard the anecdote that uh, EA didn't want to publish SimCity because uh, there was no win condition. And they're like, how can we publish a game that nobody can win? Nobody's going to play that. <laughs> Many entries and billions of dollars later, uh, yes, you can. Well, maybe EA had the final laugh because they thoroughly burned that franchise to the ground. Yeah, I mean, eventually. How dare you not work the way we wanted to? And we would have gotten away with it if not for those darn kids. <laughs> EA back then was, like, it still resembled a company run by human beings to some degree. It was it actually had some good releases, even, back then. Yeah. So did Micropost, for that matter. Even though it certainly missed the ball with Civ, but there's some good games that came out of Microprose. Yeah, back in the old days, they were a good company. Yeah, oh, I thought they don't exist anymore, do they? They were they went out of business and then they were re-resurrected, I think. And they were a different company that made hardware. Okay, well, that, that doesn't count. Yeah, I think I remember <laughs> looking this up one time and going, what? <laughs> Not for the purposes of uh, considering them as a contiguous game company. They 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 died basically. Former uh, former offices closed. Uh, Two thousand one ceased to exist as an entity. The brand was revived in two thousand seven when it was acquired from Atari Interactive and licensed to the Legacy Engineering Group for Consumer Electronics. In 2018, the company was revived and has since begun making games again. No. Has currently got a few games in uh, production. American Battle Carriers? No. Wait, yes. Task Force Admiral Volume 1, American Carrier Battles. Operation Harsh Doorstep. And Sea Power Naval Combat in the Missile Age. Well, yeah. that's Microprose going back to its roots. Yeah. Well, if you're going to revive the company's name, I guess you would <laughs> you'd be doing so because you're making something at least somewhat along the same lines. I can't imagine though that there's any continuity in like staff though. So, in that regard, yeah. is it really the same company, or is it just you know effectively a different company that's trying to make the same genres of games? I would hold it's a different company. I would hold that like companies like Blizzard are a different company now than when they were good. But at least in a case like that, you have you know that that continuity. You know, like it's yeah. it's hard to yeah, I agree. it's a but ship of Theseus. So. Yeah, it's a ship of Theseus problem where it's hard to pick out that point where it's no longer the ship of Theseus. That's true. Even though every part now is different than it was at the beginning. It's true. Blizzard at least has that, but. Even so, I'd argue that at some point, even though I can't pinpoint when it was, they certainly became very different. But with Microprose, we even have that point in addition to everything else. I'm just surprised that a company named Microprose still exists and makes games regardless, though. Yeah, that's a surprise to me, especially... I had no idea. What you can, you said 2007 was the revival? 2007 was when it was revived as a consumer electronics company. And then they did pretty much nothing. Oh, they were owned by somebody else. And then in 2019, they were bought by somebody who wanted to make games again. Okay, so the making of games is a recent thing. Yeah. The return to gaming is... I I also I imagine... Like, 
a revival of 3DO in the strategic studies group. <laughs> I also imagine that they don't own any of the uh, the properties that they used to own either, so they've got to just create completely new IPs. Unless their parent company owns something that they used to own. I'm reading here and uh, mostly proving to myself that I do not understand intellectual property law because it doesn't very clearly state what happened. That stuff can be a little bit complicated. I, I would estimate that none of us uh, understand that completely. Well, apparently the guy that Sid started the game, the the original company with, who I believe his name was Bill Steely, is working with uh, the new, new MicroProse again. Oh, yeah. then there's more continuity than we thought. Yeah. Well, there are two separate companies. The original company is gone. Well, anyway, happy birthday, Civilization. Happy birthday, Sid. Civilization games also usually release around September or October, which means their releases usually coincide with my birthday. And mine, too. Yeah, it's always a nice little birthday present when a new Civ game comes out. Even if it is Beyond Earth. <laughs> well, it was... Hey, come on. We've, we've talked about it before. It was enjoyable. It just like it needed that one more expansion. Yeah. But we didn't get that, so... I see that. It was still a nice little birthday present. Mm-hmm. Yep. But this year I gotta deal with the fact that um, there's a Pokemon game and a Dark Souls game coming out the same weekend. Good luck with that. Yeah. Are you talking about Elden Ring? Elden Ring and uh, Pokemon Legends Arceus. All right. Well, you better hope that uh, Fraxis doesn't announce a Civ uh, Seven at that time too. Then <laughs> you're you're going to be in real big trouble. Yeah, I might be in real big trouble anyway. Doesn't matter. I'll figure it out. That combination of games looking forward to makes me smile. I'm sure there's other players out there like that too, but. <laughs> Yeah, that is a pretty... Pokemon and Dark Souls, just what I was waiting for. (laughs) Yeah, it's a pretty eclectic (laughs) mix. I'm like that too, though. Oh, yeah. I'm not super into Pokemon, but uh, yeah, my my, uh, game favorites are pretty eclectic as well. Well, yeah, I'll switch between, like, Dominions 5 and Ultimate Chicken Horse, and those are kind of different games from each other, too. (laughs) Kind of? (laughs) Okay, well... In that uh, 30 years that Civ has been going on, it uh, has certainly created a lot of Civ addicts, uh, not just us, but also uh, Spencer Kornhaber at uh, The Atlantic, who is writing an issue or an article for the October 2021 issue. And that's right. We're talking about a print media article here, which uh, also has a web uh, a web page, so, you know, uh, whatever. Uh, but anyway, something that's going to be in print media. Uh, article titled Confessions of a Sid Meier's Civilization Addict. How the classic strategy game drew me back in. And this is uh, one of those manifesto things about how the author got into the game and then I guess kind of had their interest wane in it and then got really back into it again with the later games and... Uh, then at the end, does some comparisons with uh, humankind. I think this is mostly this is mostly an article that attempts to explain to forty-somethings what one more turnitus is. <laughs> For the forty-somethings, a little bit of a plus a bit of a review of humankind versus Civ, I guess. Yeah, is is it really the forty-somethings that you have to explain that to, or is it the no attention span? Uh, under 20-somethings that you really got to ex- explain one more turn addiction no, to. No, no, they know about getting really addicted into stuff. Well, <laughs> but, like, the- it's not the same thing, though, because usually with them it's it's all, like, being all over the place, jumping from one thing to another, and... I know kids in that age group who play Civ and games, and, like, Paradox games, so yeah, none of the kids that I know would have the attention span to sit and play something like Civilization. I think that's always been an on average thing, though. Like, <laughs> it's easy to forget that we are not the general population as Civ players, uh, just broadly speaking. Yeah, 
Although my my kid will sit and play Animal Crossing for hours on end, so... Like, when I was a kid, who else played Civ that I knew in person? I don't think I knew anybody who played Civ other than myself. Yeah. I was actually introduced to it by a history teacher in high school who uh, was basically like, hey, has anybody here played the Civilization games? Well, you know, founding cities in real life is kind of the same way. You gotta have water and you gotta have uh, resources. Yeah. yeah, I did have the boyfriend of a girlfriend of mine who played it, and he and I would trade it, traded our uh, backup discs back and forth for different, including Civ. I forget who started the Civ thing, whether it was me or him. But yeah, so I knew one person in real life who played it. There you go. And for me, probably- I was surprised when I finally found like one or two other people who played like StarCraft in high school. He's like, where were you when I was playing this, man? When I was in high school, we played games like Final Fantasy and Legend of Dragoon. People played those, too. But, yeah, like, there were not very many people, just generally speaking. There's always a small percentage, if you're talking about any one game genre. A lot of people played Call of Duty. And a lot of people played Pokemon. You have to remember that I'm a, I'm a bit older than you, so those were... <laughs> Pokemon was a thing. We, we actually knew some people who played Pokemon. Like, the original. Red and blue, yeah. when it was new. But, um... <laughs> I was in fifth grade when that came out. <laughs> Call of Duty less, so... Consoles were not uh, internet-capable just yet. I don't think my computer was internet-capable in 1998. Oh, we had... Ours were. Yeah? Oh, let me think. We probably had dial-up stuff. Yeah. yeah so, like, you could run that dial-up. stuff on, like, Battle.net or, uh, whatever. And that would have that would have been... I knew some people when I was in college that I also worked at the movie theater with that we were playing StarCraft over dial-up. We all were here in the same city, of course, because we worked at the same place, but playing it over dial-up. I was like, wow. That's back when they had, what was it, the Spawn disc? Only one person had to have the main copy? And- yeah. Yeah. It's impressive how well that ran over dial-up, all things considered. Yeah. Had to be better with your netcode when you didn't have a fire hose worth of data to send. <laughs> yeah. But it was very impressive. Like, it, and it would, it's infrastructure for, like, reconnecting when there's connection issues was also really good. Like, if you had awful internet, sure, you'd, you'd be lost sometimes. But that was comparatively rare. As long as you didn't have AOL. You're no. generally good. You've got mail. You've got no choice. <laughs> In some places of the country, yes, you really had no choice. We did not use AOL. We had a second phone line, too. I guess uh, I can thank my dad for being tech savvy. And I think The Atlantic is even in print media or its website tends to skew a little bit older, even I mean, I'm in my 40s. But, so it's like people about 10 or 15 years older than me, so close to my mom's age of people. And those people are not as tech savvy and probably never experienced that one more turnitis thing. I mean, mom would know because she played it too, but she's <laughs> unusual in that respect. So that they're trying to explain to the begin older bo- or not older, but later boomers and the you know, and even some of the older Gen X people, this is one more turnitis. I mean, I've experienced <laughs> it. Yeah, for uh, for years, you know, my parents would give me a hard time about. Uh, you know, all the time I would spend playing video games. And then uh, I think shortly after I uh, I moved out, graduated from college and moved out, uh, my mom got hooked on Farmville on Facebook. Oh, and uh, and, and there, there was one point where, where she, she told me, I understand now. <laughs> of all the games, though, why? Well, you know. I'm, it was there. Yeah, you know, it's, our, our parents are on Facebook. Uh, but then, of course, even even she got sick of all the, you know, the aggressive monetization and stuff like that that they started putting into that game that just kept getting worse and worse and worse. So, you know, good for her for uh, not uh, not putting up with that bull. Yeah. Your mom would kick me off so she could play Legend of Zelda. <laughs> like, you need to go to bed. Then she'd stay up till two in the morning and have to drag herself into work the next day. It's like, hmm, I don't think this is a good example. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's a true example. <laughs> it's true. It's happening. It's happening in generations down the road. It's still happening. People are staying up 
telling the kids go to bed and staying up till two, three in the morning playing games and be like, uh, the next day in the office. I'm lucky that I don't have to go to office. My dad only did stuff like Solitaire and Minesweeper for the most part. Could never get him into anything else. So the only other person in my family like plays games with their own volition. In my immediate family is my uh, younger sister. Yeah, I think it's a uh, it's definitely true that that Civilization uh, as a series does a uniquely good job of uh, of generating that one more turn uh, itis compared to you know a lot of other games. You know, even other turn based strategy games. Uh, I would say perhaps the the biggest reason for its success is just the way that it's it's always had this excellent ability to keep those short, medium, and long term you know reward systems going like throughout most of the game. Uh, you've always got like that one thing that like you're doing right now, and then that that thing like a a wonder or something that's you know that you're building that's just over the horizon, and then you know the long term things of oh I'm going to conquer those stupid Aztecs. Because uh, they've been bugging me the whole game, and and it's, the game is very good at staggering those things, so that finishing, you know, finishing that wonder doesn't feel like, oh, now I can just turn the game off. Because there's always that other thing that you've started doing halfway through building the wonder that now you have to finish that, and uh, and I think that's a big part of the reason why the game works so well. Yeah, because then you can keep setting yourself short-term goals. I'm just going to play until X. What that ends up being like a couple of hours later. Yeah, I, I don't think it's it, for me. A lot of times, it's not one more turn. It's okay. This thing's going to be done in ten turns. I'm going to play ten more turns, and then when that ten turns is up, it's oh well. You know what? No, I, I got to do like five more turns really to get to a good stopping point. Or you're in the middle of that ten turns and you get war decked on. It's like, well, I can't go to bed while there's a war. Oh yeah, I can't count the number of times I've I've told my my partner like, yeah, I was gonna come to bed, but uh, Montezuma declared war on me, and uh, sorry, that can't stand. <laughs> That's right. You gotta kick him back to the Stone Age, as if he ever left it. Yes, he did. They were at medieval tech. <laughs> I'm not talking about real Montezuma. <laughs> Here, Montezuma, have a nice, warm nuclear hug. Then I think one of my uh, favorite quotes from uh, this Atlantic article is, uh, for a game so inspired by the real world, the miracle of civilization is its total escapism, which uh, I think is also a very good way of, of capturing the essence of it, because, yeah, it has those real historic inspirations, but it doesn't, like, try to follow them to the T the way something like a Total War or Crusader Kings uh, might where you 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 sometimes feel constrained by the actual history as opposed to liberated by it, and it's it's totally values agnostic as well, which helps because nothing you do has any moral consequences because it's a game and it knows knows that it's yeah well there's a time and place for that in games yeah. but. Civ is not trying to moralize to you about what's good and bad. It just lets you do what happened in history. Although, uh, some versions of global warming are a little awkward in Civ. Well, it's a problem. But yeah, it's not really a moral lesson. It's just extremely annoying. It's complicated. Well, I'm thinking back now to, like, the old sieves too, where you get, like, a random pollution just appearing, and you could, like, go clean it up, which... That was just cancer. Yeah. It, it, but kind of in a literal sense, in terms of the micromanagement burden. Yeah. Here, <laughs> have, like, 25 workers in every city to clean up the orange goo. Yeah, it, even from Civ 4 on, it's been much less annoying. Well, the issue with that design is it's just like an inconvenience because you just got to send the workers over there to clean it up. And then it's kind of yep. pretty much taken care of. And you have the workers, you know, because that was back when your your workers didn't have a limited number of things they can do. It just took them longer to do the things, but you could also stack them to make them faster. So by the end of the game, you probably have just a stack of 10 workers that can go over to wherever the heck that pollution is and clean it up in a turn or two. It's just yeah. a matter of like doing that, and it's just annoying and tedious. 
You do lose at least one turn of guaranteed yields, too, though, because on the turn it appears, you don't get those yields even if you can clear it. True, but it's also late enough in the game that does that one turn of yields really make all that much of a difference, because you've, you've probably long since already jumped out ahead and are winning the game, or, you know, you're behind to the point where, why the heck are you still even playing? Uh, if I recall correctly, in the earlier civs, you pollution was not just, like, industrial tech stuff. If you grew your cities big enough and like put enough stuff in the build in the cities early, you could get pollution earlier. Maybe I'm misremembering that though. Oh, did it? Uh, maybe I was never playing on a hard enough difficulty where that was an issue until late in the game. I, I might be misremembering, but I was under the impression that it was possible to get it earlier. I know Civ Four had the health stuff where if your if your cities became overpopulated early in the game, they would just starve and die, which was kind of funny because it basically just solved its own problem. Yeah, I mean, usually, unless you had somebody, like, poisoning water or you lost a bunch of resources or something, it would just slow you down, because each unhealthiness in Civ War just costs you one food, um, which is bad. I mean, it's like having a tile taken away from you if you're having significant unhealth issues. Uh, but because that tended to grow gradually as your city increased in population, it was uncommon for health issues to starve you. But yeah, it was definitely a cap on a city if you didn't have other caps. Just had a brilliant idea that I'll have to describe later. Well, what about this brilliant idea? I said I just had a brilliant idea that I will have to describe later. Oh, okay. Hmm. It's not related to Civ, which is why it will be described later. Oh, fair enough. So has anyone on this panel uh, played Humankind compare and contrast with the article's take on it? Uh, yeah, and in fact, we discussed it at length in the uh, previous episode, which is now up on the okay. website for anyone who wants to check it out. It was, that was like, what, almost a 40 or 50 minute discussion with uh, uh, who's the, the Chris D. Sorry, I've been, uh, I've been off the show for a while. Yeah. <laughs> Had uh, multiple issues back to back. But uh, I, I think we can save the humankind stuff for later, because we are planning on talking about it a little bit more. So, uh, Phil, if you've had a chance to play it and, and want to talk about it, we can definitely talk about it later. I have not. I will catch up on the earlier episodes to see your guys' takes, and then perhaps I will have some comments of my own. Yeah, it looks like the the um, this article, though, pretty much hits it on the head, which is the, the biggest change between Civ and Humankind is how you win the game. You know, Humankind goes more towards this, like, just accumulation of victory points, whereas uh, Civ has those very discrete victory conditions where you have to do a very specific thing in a very specific field in order to win. And that win then completely invalidates other Civs attempting to do the same thing or, you know, approaching victory in a different uh, different victory condition. Playing with victory cards. And uh, yeah, that definitely is a, a different, a big difference, because it, it makes it, especially later in the game, where, you know, you, you're still kind of just doing what you feel like doing, you know, expanding however you want, and not feeling like, oh, I have to focus exclusively on this one thing now, or else I might fall behind it and, and lose. You just... Keep doing what you've been doing the whole game. I want to see how Old World compares once it's out of Epic Jail. <laughs> yep, same here. What are you talking about? Old World's not out yet. That's what I just said. Well, speaking of multiplayer things, uh, all I've ever have is somebody who are, well, our four, one of our four, bleh, I can talk, I swear. One of our own, our founder and former co-host, Dan Q over there, in Symphony Night, posting about Out of Sync. There's an out-of-game suggestion for this, because this is crapped up a lot in the multiplayer, that somebody will drop for whatever reason, whether somebody's had a crash, their connection gets temporarily disrupted, and you have them come back into the game and then it just then like the rest of the game they're out of sync and that's not a fun way to play and he and warning you two was one of our players in the 
uh, Saturday multiplayer games. They play cooperative on a weekly, not just on a weekly basis. I've seen them in the middle of the week, just randomly playing. And through trial and error, they figured out uh, a trick, sort of, to address the out-of-sync issues for your multiplayer. That it's just the last couple of updates. It was fine for a while, and then it's gotten really bad. But the way you do it, you have your host exit the game and clear their download cache through Steam settings. Which I don't know how that. I mean, like nobody needs to know why this works on a technical basis, but it works. And it's saying this is particularly uh, good when you're having a lot of players desync because it seems to say that suggests there's a host issue as opposed to a player issue. I mean, sometimes it's the internet because, like, we have our European players and they'll both desync and then come back in. And sometimes it's fine and sometimes it's not. Just trying to get everybody back on the same page, kind of. And the sooner you do it, you know, the sooner you do it, the less time you're going to spend worrying about the trying to resync yourself or having to wait for the resync every turn, which I, I've had that in a couple of games and it's miserable. The sooner you do it, the sooner you can get back to normal playing things. And he does have the exact, in, in the post, he has the exact place to go in Steam to get that. And you, I think you, because you, you, you're going to have to log, because it's going to clear your login to Steam, so you have to log back into Steam too. But it's a quick trick. It's not, I mean, it would be nice if, if we could figure out why this is happening and patch it, but I don't think we're going to get much patchwork left on Civ, so this is your solution for the time being. It's something, at least. Anecdotally, I can say this works. Yeah, I do can say it works, because we've had to use it multiple times. I like uh, uh, Buktu's response to this, which is, uh, I've been busy playing Humankind and preparing for my exams. Well, good luck to you, Buktu, for completing those two particular combination of things. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I can relate to that. You will need the luck. On exams, yes. Gaming and exam prep? Yeah, especially this kind of game. Well, hopefully you don't need luck on Sam. Well, I mean, good luck in in balancing the two things. To the Uh, point where you are successful at both. Ideally, you don't need that much luck with the game, either. That couldn't be true. Oh, you told me to upgrade my luck skill. You have to put more points into it. It's different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, many, many players have struggled with that particular combination of things. Hey, I made it through school. I think we did okay. Yeah, I got through too. I even did pretty well. Just have to allocate enough time. Or do like I did and have no social life. <laughs> Well, that's one way to allocate more time. Yeah, it definitely helps. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, your choices have to reflect what's optimal for you. Not for other people. Well, it wasn't optimal for me, but I survived, so... Okay. Speaking of survival, I guess. You had uh, a reference to Twitter here on our show. It's unusual, for sure. This coming from a tweet from uh, Sidmir Civilization. Which tech have you found the most game-changing and why? And even thinking about this a little bit, I'm not sure what I would pick. Uh, some people said nuclear weapons or sending settlers out, bombers, etc. And it does vary a little bit game to game uh, how effective those are. For example, there's no single tech in Civ 4 that would give you nuclear weapons. You need fission and rocketry. Uh, so... That doesn't really work in that case, for example. Like things like Apostolic Palace come to mind. But even like a simple tech like the wheel, like if you try to play uh, Civ games where you can build roads without access to building roads, it's awful. So that's pretty game changing. Uh, Unlocking the ability to trade technologies in earlier Civs is very game changing if you have technology trading on. Uh, gaining access to vassals is very game-changing, so I don't know what I would pick as the most. I think it really depends on a lot of circumstances, one of them being uh, the map conditions, because if you're playing on a continent's map, then, you know, I would say there's probably a case for uh, whatever tech in in that respective game unlocks the ability to cross oceans, 
Uh, you know, currently it's cartography. Too, but I'm not sure I agree, just because it's possible to win without e- either muting to their continent or bothering with it much. So, like, even when you do meet them, you get some benefits, but I'm not sure that's on the same order as things that give you, like, completely new game options outright. Well, I mean, it does open up, like, half of the entire map to you that was inaccessible before. So, like, in just that sense, I I feel like that's a pretty game-changing thing. I mean, it might not be, depending on the circumstances. Uh, You know, if you're looking to colonize that other half of the world and it's already claimed, well, then, you know... I mean, it's it's significant, but if you want to say it's the most game-changing, then I'm not so sure. Oh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know anything. Any one tech would be the most game-changing. I I just brought that up as a potential contender uh, specifically for continents maps. Yeah. Yeah, this is it's this is tough to settle on one. And I think it would change game to game. But on average, what's like the hugest tech? It's got to be something early, right? But I don't know what. Well, clearly it's agriculture. <laughs> you start with it. Yes, that's true. City not going to grow big without farms. The prerequisite for everything. Yeah, and in Civ Six, you you have to have that, right? Like to start the game, you have that <laughs> the ability to make farms. In terms of science output and the raw chemistry, is pretty good. Yeah, yeah. There's a a chart here from uh, Tyler Budry that just shows how uh, their science output just absolutely explodes uh, on the turn that they start building research labs. That varies game to game too, of course. You know, it, it looks like it's a yeah, it looks like it's a pretty pretty linear increase and then like bam, it just pivots like at almost a 45 degree angle up the side of the chart. Let's see. I don't know, maybe the tech that unlocks artillery could be a pretty game-changing tech, because that's the point where, you know, your military can just absolutely roll over opponents without uh, having to deal with city bombarding cities bombarding you back. It kind of does earlier, though, if you, if you have um, experienced siege. Yeah, if you get a, a siege unit or a, up to that uh, plus one range promotion, then it's basically the same thing. You can do that pretty early in the game if uh, the stars align. Yeah, you're just fighting a lot. And and that siege weapon survives long enough to get there. Usually they do, though, because you're keeping them back deliberately. Ironworking? That's big, too. I don't know if it's the biggest, though, because, like, there's all kinds of military tech rush timings, and I don't feel like ironworking is particularly special. Yeah, and that's also going to depend on what your unique units are, because, you know, maybe you've got a really good, unique horse replacement, in which case you're, you know, not necessarily going for ironworking, you're going for, uh, you know, like, chivalry or horseback riding or whatever. I guess the other supplementary question would be, are there real-life technologies that were world-changing that are maybe not as world-changing in civilization? Stirrups? Yeah. Yeah. Telegraph? What'd you say, Maggie? Telegraph. Because news usually take weeks to get places, and now through the lines, they could get news within the same day of something happening on the opposite side of the Atlantic or even across the U.S. Yeah, that was actually something I was going to bring up, was the combination of railroads and the telegraph just completely changing the speed at which life is lived. Uh, Something that I think is always underrated is the invention of uh, the elevator, which allows for, you know, city growth vertically as opposed to outward and allows you to cram way more people into way less space. I think, yeah, you need more than the elevator for that, though, because you need the structural design that can hold up. Yeah. It's basically steel. Right. Yeah. So, uh, and, like, railroads are pretty darn good in civilization, so to, to say that, like, railroads are good in the game, but that it still doesn't feel as uh, dramatic as that invention was in real life, I think is is still saying a lot to how much of a difference that particular technology made to real life human civilization. Industrialism. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. I'd say industrialism even more though than something like gunpowder in Civ. Even though gunpowder in Civ is much weaker than it was in reality as well. Stuck on the other side of the computer right now. There's a cat who is. 
Yeah, on the military side, tanks are also a joke in Civ compared to their influence in real wars. Radio, maybe? Yeah. And the internet, for that matter. Just telecommunications technologies in general, I mean, have just changed uh, the world so much in such a short time. And yeah. uh, the game, like, really doesn't quite do that justice, but... There's also I like, yeah. How would it? Because like, if you made if you made text as impactful in the game as they were in reality with something like the internet or telecommunications, the rate at which it would put the first civilizations to discover it in front would be like game over. It's like, oh well, that guy got internet, so I, I guess we lose now. Well, and there's also just the the gameplay contrivances that you know don't replicate the real world where like right from the start of the game, you have control over your units wherever they are on the map. You don't yeah. need telecommunications to give them orders. You know, this isn't like uh like a game where your unit gets far enough out into the fog of war and it like disappears off of your radar and maybe it comes back and tells you stories of its adventures uh, and maybe it dies somewhere and, and you don't find it until your archaeologists you know, discover a relic from it, you know, 4,000 years later. Uh, so, like, you you basically have telecommunications from the start of the game as just a matter of simple gameplay contrivance. But, again, it's like, how would you do it any differently? Yeah, there are ways you an important do point it. that I often there point are. out in uh, the Paradox games when people talk about things that are not historical or whatever, is that the player, uh, just by default, is, like, basically a, a god entity making decisions in a contiguous fashion for our nation across periods of time. And there's no historical parallel for that. That's never happened in history, obviously. So... That we know of. Well, I mean, certainly not like a human-like entity making choices for a nation for like 400 to thousands of years such that like you'd sacrifice any human incentives in favor of the country's good constantly for that long. That's just not a thing. That would no. <sighs> no. Anyway, this Candace, you know, we, for we, all we, the we, trolls. We <laughs> don't know. <laughs> Candace, I think you were about to suggest a, a way of maybe modeling the lack of telecommunications no. earlier in the game. It could be done. Game. It could be done, but it wouldn't save any. Yeah, it, you would have to change the the, game the, 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 the the central conceit of the game would be different, which means it would not be civic. But that's okay, because I'm sure games like that either have have been made or are in the process of being made or will someday be. Somebody will take that idea and run with it, and it will either be a good game or it won't, and we'll find out when it happens. Yep. Well... Speaking, I guess, of things that aren't Civ anymore, let's uh, circle back around and uh, talk a little bit more about uh, humankind. Uh, we have a thread on Civ Fanatics from uh, Boris Goodenough uh, asking, what can Civ 7 learn from humankind and also from other games? And um, having played humankind a little bit, uh, I definitely think there is a lot of uh, of merit there that the developers at Firaxis should definitely take a close look at. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, it is a very... It, it's it's kind of funny because it's a game that feels very familiar but is, is also still, you know, noticeably different. Uh, it's, it doesn't feel like it is just Amplitude's take on civilization. Like, it, it does still have its own unique feel and identity. Uh, so let's see. Some of the things that Boris uh, suggests is uh, one thing is the the map, and uh, he says that humankind's map is gorgeous, uh, <clears throat> even though it doesn't show infrastructure on the map. Uh, I would I I'm a big fan of how Civilization Six's map looks as well. So I I don't know that humankind is a dramatic improvement in that regard. Uh, but one thing that I will say that I like a lot about Humankind's maps is that it actually models differences in elevation. So you don't just have uh, basically, you know, one universal 
elevation for all of land, and then you have hills on top of that and mountains on top of that, and that's it. Uh, humankind actually has various grades of, of uh, elevation, including inland cliffs and plateaus and stuff like that that dramatically impact how your units move and where you put cities and how defensible those cities might be. Uh, and how districts spread out from those cities, because districts have to be a- adjacent to other districts, and you can't just build a city center at the top of a cliff and then build a district at the bottom of the cliff. you got to spread out the other way and-, and go around, you know, gradually down the hill to the backside. So uh, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff going on there that I would like to see in future Civ games. Calivation has been something that people... I think they've they've put in like basic games in uh my brain is not working. Um I think in the Civ five demos there was height elevation years ago. Oh really? And I think they yeah, I think so. I I remember like in the civilization anthology that they released before Civ or right around the time Civ Five came out. Um there was um, a view, a few video items in that that showed demos of Civ Five, and I seem to remember there being elevation changes in that. And I also remember that they took them out because they caused too much confusion. So maybe it will be re-added at some point. Sure. Yeah, you, you definitely have to have a really good art team that can figure out a way of making it clear to the player, like through the, the visuals and the art of the game, uh, of, you know, where those elevation changes are. Because that actually has been a slight problem for me with the Humankind. I don't know if you can rotate the camera or change the camera angle at all in Humankind, other than just scrolling uh, out and scrolling in. But there have been times where there's, you know a cliff on the far side of the camera that on certain terrains I just don't see. Uh, it's kind of analogous to that problem in Civ Six where those there's those tiles somewhere that look like they might be hills because they have that, that little tiny shadow over one side of them, yeah. but but they're not hills. Uh, so there's, there's a little bit of that in Humankind as well, but overall, it's pretty easy to tell where the elevation changes, and that's a, a testament to the uh, work of the uh, the art team, uh, and I, if I remember correctly, I think Alpha Centauri had uh, changes in elevation, even in its its two D isometric sprite based graphics. Yeah, because it treated the map as a flexible layer kind of thing. So it would, it would if you had a high mountainous area, it would lift it up a lot, and it had a and every like thousand meters of elevation, it made differences to like your rainfall and stuff. Because even model proper rainfall. Like, one side of a mountain area caught all the rain, and the other side was very dry. It did... I don't... I don't know if it made a difference in combat. I can't remember, because it's been so long since I've played a game of it, but it was there. Because it would... You would have a map basically undulate in front of you, you know, up and down, and if you dropped the Planet Busters, you could get craters going all the way down into the ocean, which also had elevation, so... Yeah, and I think Humankind also gives combat bonuses and penalties for going up or down uh, slopes, and I'm not sure, but I think that the bonuses and penalties might also scale with the steepness of the slope. So if it's a steeper slope, you're going to have a greater penalty for having to climb up it to attack a unit, or vice versa. Yeah, the playthroughs and stuff I've seen, everybody always goes for the high ground because they get that little bit extra damage, and that's even when it's just still basic scouts and warriors and stuff, that's not even getting into archery. Yeah, it makes a huge difference. Which brings us to the next of Boris's topics, which is uh, how uh, the lessons Civ can learn from humankind's combat. And uh, for those who are unfamiliar with the way it works, is you get to stack armies. There's like a, a cap to how many units can be in an army, and they move around the campaign map as an army. But then when they encounter an enemy army or enemy unit in the field, the game kind of stops and you get several rounds of combat within that one campaign turn in which the uh, units basically like come out of the uh, the army. And then you have a round where you get to deploy and position them. If you've ever played Total War, it's similar to the deployment phase 
of the real-time battles in Total War, uh, and then you fight a, a tactical battle uh, on the map for, like, three turns, and if you kill all the other units, uh, then you win. Uh, if not, then that battle carries over into the next campaign round. Uh, and that's an attempt to, I guess, reduce a lot of the unit micromanagement, which is a pretty big problem in uh, both Civ Five and Civ Six. I can't count the number of times where I've I've captured a capital in uh, in Civ Five and Civ Six, and instead of being like yes, I'm more like oh my god, now I have to march all fifteen of my units all the way across the map, and I've got to do it one turn at a time because if a mountain or some other feature blocks them. All their movements get canceled, or if another unit walks onto a tile that they're moving to, everything gets canceled, and it's just, oh my gosh, it's such a headache. Uh, humankind bypasses that by letting you just stack your units. The ship could also just benefit from good passing conventions from other games when it comes to that stuff, too. Yeah. Some, yeah, some of the routes the AI chooses to take is like, why? Because somehow, mathematically, it's technically faster or something. <laughs> just bizarre. Yeah, so humankind's approach does, you know, mitigate or outright solve that issue of frustrating and tedious unit micromanagement. The one thing, though, that is still a problem in humankind that was also a problem in Civ 5 and Civ 6 is the scale of the tactical battles, because the, the scale of the map doesn't change when you go into tactical battles. It's, it's not like one of those, like, older RTS games where, uh, or even like a Total War game, where you go to a completely separate map to fight the battle. It, it's right there on that the same campaign map with the same exact terrain features and same exact scale. So you still have kind of that issue where, uh, you know, these battles kind of spill out into other cities and into sometimes adjacent battles. And uh, uh, that can be a little bit like, eh, you know, I, I kind of wish there would be a system where, you know, maybe we had a smaller scale map to fight these battles on, especially if you're going to have multiple combat turns within the same campaign turn. Like, you're already slowing down the game to have that happen. So, uh, you know, eh. You know, Master of Magic back in the day when you would go into a lair or even if you had a battle, I mean, you and the units were all on one tile. But it blew it up into a, but it went to a separate battle mode that was an entire big map that, like, if you were in a hills terrain, there were a lot of hilly things and more trees and things, or if you had a flat plain or you had tundra. So it modeled that one tiles area basically in a smaller map. You could do that with something like Humankind. You'd be off the main map. But this also, I guess, the way they've done it prevented them from having to write an entirely separate battle system code, so to speak. You right. know what's awesome uh, lately is Bannerlord, uh, Mountain Blade Bannerlord, has tried to switch how it handles the transition to the battle screen in a way that the terrain in the battle is representative of uh, where you are on the map. Oh yeah, definitely have to have like that. Some granular details, which is really impressive. Yeah, you definitely have to have that. The If you are going to go to a separate map screen for the battles, it definitely has to be something that is representative of what the campaign map looks like, because otherwise you end up with situations where you go to a place that might have strategic or tactical value for the battle in the campaign map, and then, oh, they take you to a battle map where that particular quality of the map is just not present, and you end up getting obliterated. You know, you don't want to march your, your army into that, uh, what is that, Thermopylae, battle thinking you're going to have this choke point that you can funnel all their units through and then oh no it just puts you on an open field and now suddenly being outnumbered five to one uh makes uh, not such a great fight it, yeah it, it's yeah. it's a much less winnable fight <clears throat> yeah if we're gonna bridge crossings and stuff then they, they need to actually be <laughs> yeah if, if i'm gonna fight a battle at a bridge on the campaign map they're sure as heck better be bridges <laughs> on the battle map for me to defend as well Let's see, next up from Boris is city management, when basically he's just pointing out that uh, city management is mostly automatic in humankind. You don't have to assign workers or uh, citizens to work specific tiles. Uh, in fact, uh, the number of tiles that's worked is not even limited by population. It's just any tile that's adjacent to a, a district is worked by that district. Uh, 
So if you have a lot of districts and a small population, you can hypothetically get a lot of production out of a city with still a small population. Although there are, you can still assign population as, it's kind of more akin to Civ specialists. So all of your populations are more like specialists in Civ, uh, instead of working the specific tiles. And the counter to that is the more districts you have in a city, the lower the city's stability becomes, which increases the likelihood of, like, rebellions and stuff like that. Can so. we just have specialists in Civ 6? Yeah, it would be nice if specialists in Civ 6 did not just completely suck. So yeah, that's definitely a different way of doing it, and Civ 7 could maybe take some lessons from there. Although I, I think I kind of like the the citizens working tiles mechanic from Civ, like as is. I, I don't think that's something that needs to change. It's not necessarily, I think, a better system in humankind. It's just a different system that works for that particular game. I hear that Old World, when it comes out, has a good method of ending the game early, and that that's something they emphasized. So perhaps that is a place that Civ could explore as well. Yeah, which goes into the next of Boris's topics, which is victory conditions, where humankind has one victory condition, and it's uh, a score victory condition. It's analogous to, in, in terms of Civ, if era score were victory points. That's kind of how humankind handles it. But you have well, a lot of you have a lot of flexibility in going for that victory point score, though. You can start out being uh, militaristic and then roll into something more cultural or scientific and still win the game. Whereas Civ, once you pick one of those, you have to commit through the rest of the game to get to that victory condition. Yes, and in humankind, every uh, this is something that I don't think was brought up by by Boris as something that Civ could potentially learn from humankind, but the perhaps biggest difference between humankind and Civ is that you're not, in humankind, you're not picking one Civ and then playing that Civ for the entire game. Every era, mm -hmm. you have the opportunity to select a different civilization, and that means you can either pick the civilization that best suits the strategy that you're already playing towards. You know, maybe in the classical era, you were a, a commercial, you know, mercantile trade-based civilization, so you, you get into the medieval era and you pick another commercial mercantile trade civilization. Uh, in order to keep compounding uh, and snowballing those benefits you're receiving. Or maybe you decide, hey, I'm falling behind in science, so I want to pick a medieval civilization that specializes in science so I can catch up to the other civs. And each of these era civilizations has their own unique ability, they have their own unique uh, district, and they have their own unique unit. So you don't have to like plan the whole game around that window of opportunity of when your one unique unit is available, as is the case in Civ VI uh, and in uh, previous Civilization games as well. Uh, every era, you get a new one to play around with. So it, it, every era is that's you know new civilization's little you know golden age, so to speak, where you have that window of opportunity to use all that stuff. And no matter who you pick, you get some sort of permanent benefit that's going to carry your civilization through. So even if you've gone towards cultural science later, you might still have a decent enough military background that if somebody decides to come after you, like, well, I can still whip up a decent army. Right. And, you know, there are multiple ways that civilization could invoke, you know, analogous mechanics. Uh, you know, I don't know if, if Firaxis would ever want to go the route of completely changing your civilization each era the way that humankind did. But, you know, ideas that have been proposed in the past is, is you've had people propose the idea of maybe having era-specific leaders for each civilization. So your leader changes over the course of the game, and each leader might have different abilities and maybe different unique units and stuff like that. Uh, or just have the same leader, but you do have maybe era-specific unique units and maybe era-specific uh, unique districts and stuff like that, or buildings or infrastructure or improvements. Can yeah, I do or give the leader something every, every deck, every uh, era? And it doesn't even necessarily have to be every era. Like, it could be like every other era, because, you know, there are going to be those civilizations where it's hard to come up with something... Uh, you know, for every era, you know, like you have a lot of like ancient and classical and medieval civilizations that didn't survive past those eras. So like, what is a modern unique unit for the Aztecs? Like, that's going to be a, a tough thing to come up with. Eagle Scouts. <laughs> yeah, sure. Era. But it's it, running around on motorcycles or ATVs now. I mean, come on. <laughs> 
they have jetpacks and actually fly. That's why they're called Eagle Scouts. There you go. Eagle Scouts, yes. Because <laughs> that's a historical thing, the Jetpack Scouts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just like real history. Uh, another little difference that Boris points out uh, that can be significant in humankind is that there are some like units and infrastructure and stuff that require combinations of uh, resources. Uh, let's see. Do they have any specific examples? That used to be a thing in the Civ games. Yeah, and that's something that I would definitely like to see come back. You know, like it would be... I think it's reasonable for like a knight, a mounted knight, to require both a horse and iron. You know, maybe uh, in the context of Civ Six, it's five of each instead of ten of one. Let's see. Then Boris points out that the tech tree is uh, pretty different. Uh, he says that humankind goes back to the Civ Five, an earlier type of complex multi-tech tree, compared to Civ Six's bare bones tree with Eurekas. Is there a way to get the best of both? I'm not sure exactly what he means by complex. Multi-tech tree compared to bare-bones tree? I guess you there's just... Not, I think because there's not just one good path through there. The other thing is humankind. <clears throat> with only a, I think there's only a handful of techs or exceptions. You're also gated within the era until you move to the next era. You can't do like a deep dive all the way to something like going for gunpowder super early so you can overwhelm everybody else. No, I have been able to research techs from future eras uh, yeah, in the current era. Yeah, it's, I think it's only, like, certain exceptions. Yeah, so if, if there is gating, it's it's not just a simple matter of you can't research text from future eras. There's something else going on. I haven't run into it specifically yet, so I don't know how that works. And then lastly is uh, Boris talks about the civics and social policies, whereas uh, Civilization VI separates them. Uh, humankind just has a lot fewer, but each requires decisions that move your faction in one direction or the other. And what's also interesting about the civic choices in humankind is that they come about as kind of emergent events uh, based on what happens in the game. So you don't just like unlock a tech or whatever, and now you have access to bureaucracy or, or whatever. Uh, instead, in humankind, the way it works is something has to happen in the game to trigger the adoption of a new civic, and then you have choices of whether you, you go in one direction or another uh, with that particular choice of how you want to implement that thing. So, for example, you build a large enough army, and then, at that point, you're given the option to decide how you want to, like, regulate your army. Do you want a professional trained standing army, or do you want an army of mercenaries and conscripts? And you have to choose one or the other, and each one gives you various buffs, but they also shift the ideology of your sieve in one direction or the other that also applies other passive and permanent buffs throughout the game, which can change if you start shifting it back the other direction or move it even further in the direction you were already going. So in any given game of humankind, there might be lots of social policies that you just never have an opportunity to adopt because there was just never an opportunity. They, they were never relevant to your civilization. Whereas in, in Civ, you can always just pick whatever social policies you want once you've unlocked a prerequisite technology or civic. Yeah, it's almost like a tech tree of civics, if that makes sense. Yeah, and it kind of reminds me, again, trying to look for a an example within the Civilization games, is it kind of reminds me of the events in Beyond Earth, where you would do some things in Beyond Earth, and then you would get that little dialogue box that would pop up that would give you, like, two choices of, like, maybe how you want to specialize some building. You know, oh, do you want it to give you food yield, or do you want it to give you more science yeah. yield? And then you, you would choose one or the other, and it would give you a permanent buff to, to that building for the rest of the game, depending on which you, you chose. It's The civic system, or the social policy system in humankind, kind of works in, in the same way, where you do a thing, and then you're prompted to make a choice on how you want that thing to uh, be implemented for the rest of the game. And so what it does is it, it makes it feel more like your actions are shaping the uh, the ideology and the government and the, uh, you know, society of your civilization uh, in more emergent ways than they happen in, uh, in civilization, where it's just like, oh, unlock the new government, adopt a new government, fill it with social policies, whatever the heck benefits me the most right now. 
So there's that uh, that greater sense of a gradual kind of evolution of the society in humankind compared to perhaps Civ Five and Civ Six. So yeah, those are uh, Borif Gudinov's uh, thoughts from the forums. I don't really know that I have a whole lot to add, and I don't know if anyone else here has played a lot of Humankind. I don't think I've, co- I've mostly watched it and played a little bit in the bids. I don't know that I have, you know, I don't know that I'm qualified to really, you know, throw big opinions out. Uh, but yeah, I think that the biggest things that Firaxis should look at in Humankind is the the implementation of the victory system and the uh, that I that concept of switching civilizations each era and therefore having era-specific unique bonuses and uh, units and infrastructure. Uh, Again, I don't think Firaxis needs to do the exact same, you know, copy it verbatim from humankind, you know, find a way to fit those into the existing civilization framework. But, uh, I, you know, it definitely is nice to, to have that unique stuff every era and not feel like, oh, I'm coming to that, that narrow window of opportunity where I have my unique unit. And if I don't fight a war now, I'm never going to get to use it. Even if, you know, right now is not necessarily the best time for a war. Maybe I'm friendly with all of my neighbors and there's just no one to fight. Or maybe I'm outmatched. Uh, you know, you always have in humankind that opportunity later to utilize a unique unit. And I think Civ Six kind of already went a little bit in that direction with uh, having some civs that have multiple unique units, or the the civ has a unique unit, and then the leader has a unique unit. Uh, and in some cases, they are in different eras, uh, so that you do have multiple opportunities to take advantage of a unique uh, unit. So just kind of you know expand that a little bit more. I haven't played please. yet, so I don't. Please UI conventions, please. <laughs> yes. You guys are better than Paradox, but there's still a lot that could be done. Quality of life. There we go. This has episode 309 Polypath. I have been Canis Albinus, and I have joined with our full bevy of co hosts, Makalua. I know what a Q is, I swear. The me and T. And I know what to put in the Q. And Mega Bears fan. Mackie just wants to give me more stuff to edit. At least silence is easy. Yeah, it is. That'll be where to go to get the noise reduction. <laughs> yeah. Civilization 3, 4, 5, Beyond Earth, and 6 Sound Clips, Copyright Take 2, and Rack. Copyright the Polycast at thepolycast.net.